Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week I have a quick and dirty tip about lit versus lighted, a clarification about jury-rigged and jerry-rigged, and a meaty middle about what makes words like hardy with a T and hardy with a D sound the same when some people say them. On to the quick and dirty tip. Have you ever wondered why we have two past tense forms of the verb to light? Should you say squiggly lit citronella candles or squiggly lighted citronella candles? Maybe you've even wondered whether one is wrong. Lighted sounds kind of weird in that sentence, right? Well, both words are correct. Light is one of those rare English words that has two acceptable past tense forms. Lighted is what we call a regular verb because you make it past tense by adding ed to the end. And lit is what we call an irregular verb because you change the spelling to make it past tense. You don't just add ed. In the past, English had a lot more irregular verbs, but over time, many changed form and became regular, making English simpler. But for reasons nobody seems to be able to explain, light took the opposite route. Long ago, people used the irregular verb, saying they lit candles. And for a time, the verb acted like many others and moved toward becoming a regular verb. In other words, people started saying they lighted candles instead of saying they lit candles. But, and this is the thing that makes the verb unusual, around 1900, people switched back to using lit as the past tense, and that's still the more common form today. As a verb, lit is currently much more common than lighted in both British and American English. Of course, lit and lighted can also be adjectives. For example, you can say you entered a lit hallway or you entered a lighted hallway. And the story here is a little different. Lit appears to be more common as an adjective in British English, just like the verb, But in American English, lit and lighted seem to be used with about equal frequency as adjectives. And that's your quick and dirty tip. Lit and lighted both currently exist as fully acceptable past tense forms of the verb to light and as adjectives. But lit is used more often. Next, I have just a little bit of information about the phrase jerry-rigged, because after our show a few weeks ago about the phrase jury-rigged, which has a surprisingly nautical origin, a bunch of you said that you always thought the phrase was jerry-rigged. So what's up with that? Jury-rigged is definitely the original phrase to mean something that's kludged together. But in the mid-1800s, the phrase jerry-built emerged to describe something that was poorly built, like housing that used substandard materials. Nobody seems to be sure where it came from. For example, the Oxford English Dictionary has a citation from 1875 that reads, Rows of jerry-built cottages are creeping up. But they say the origin of the phrase is, quote, not ascertained, unquote. The entry speculates that it probably somehow comes from the name Jerry. There's also some speculation out there that because one nickname for Germans during World War II was the Jerry's, Jerry Built later took on its meaning or retook on the meaning of being shoddily built 
as a way to criticize German equipment. But again, there's no proof. So, jury-rigged is the original phrase to mean something that was carelessly or temporarily thrown together. But confusingly, jerry-built has also taken on that meaning. And now, people are also conflating the two and coming up with the phrase jerry-rigged. Thanks for your questions. I hope that clears things up. And now, on to alveolar flapping. A couple of months ago, I answered a listener's question about how to remember the meanings of the adjectives hearty, spelled H-E-A-R-T-Y, and hardy, spelled H-A-R-D-Y. I said the words were confusing because their meanings overlapped somewhat, and that's true. But there's another reason for the difficulty in keeping these words straight. They're homophones. At least they're homophones in American English. In British English, though, they're not. They're pronounced hearty and hardy. Actually, they're not pronounced that way either. They're pronounced in any one of the many accents of British English, which I won't embarrass myself by trying to imitate. The point is, the T in hearty sounds like a T, and the D in hardy sounds like a D. In fact, there are many pairs of words that are homophones in American English because we pronounce a T in one of them like a D. For example, there's ladder, the device that you climb, and ladder as opposed to former. There's riding, as in horseback riding, and writing, as in quick and dirty tips for better writing. (laughs) If you're listening to this podcast for tips on equitation, sorry, this isn't the podcast for you. There's Bodie, as in Bodie Miller, and Bodie, as in Bodie McBoatface. This phenomenon is also what lets us make a rhyme when we say, work smarter, not harder. So why do we do this in American English? And how long have we been doing it? First, we need a word for what to call this pronunciation quirk. The linguistic term for it is alveolar tapping, or alveolar flapping. The word alveolar refers to the alveolar ridges in your mouth. What are those? Well, I'm glad you asked. The alveolar ridges are the bony, gum-covered ridges behind your front teeth. You have an upper one and a lower one. But when phoneticians talk about an alveolar ridge, they're almost always talking about the upper one, because that's where you put the tip of your tongue to make so-called alveolar consonants. T and D are alveolar consonants. So we're N and a few others. Go ahead and make a T, D, or N sound right now. And you'll feel your tongue tip on your alveolar ridge. T, D, N. An alveolar tap or flap is made by putting that tongue tip on the alveolar ridge so quickly that it doesn't really stop the airflow the way a true T does. Some phoneticians have argued that there's a difference between tapping and flapping, which I won't try to describe here. These days, the opinion seems to be that whatever difference there is, isn't important. So tap and flap are often used as synonyms. I'll use the word flap, since it seems to be somewhat more popular. Why do American English speakers sometimes use alveolar flaps for T's? 
we can get a partial answer by noticing exactly when we do it. The most common situation for T to turn into an alveolar flap is when it's between two vowels. The first one stressed, and the second one unstressed. This is exactly what happens in ladder, writing, and bodhi. That doesn't quite cover everything, though. Notice that the consonant R can follow the first vowel, as in hardy. Also, the first vowel isn't always stressed. Sometimes both vowels are unstressed. This happens in words such as rickety, where the second and third syllables are unstressed, and the T between them gets flapped. Flapping doesn't happen when the second syllable is stressed, as you can hear in words like attach, where the T at the beginning of the second syllable sounds like a T, attach. But even this rule has exceptions. For example, in the phrase look it up, the pronoun it is unstressed and the preposition up is stressed, and American English speakers still flap the T in it, look it up. In fact, phonologists are still trying to pin down exactly when flapping does and doesn't occur. But it's safe to say that, by and large, it happens between vowels. This means that flapping is a kind of assimilation, a change that makes one sound more like neighboring sounds. When you pronounce a true T, you momentarily shut off your voice by completely closing your vocal folds. When you say vowels, though, you're using your voice. So when a T comes between vowels, the voice has to stop for the T and then start again after it. On the other hand, flapping a T between vowels allows the voicing of the vowels to continue uninterrupted all the way through. So it's a labor-saving change. Now, if you're saying, well, that's true enough, but it doesn't explain why only speakers of American English do it, you're exactly right. In fact, this question can be asked about any sound change in any language that spreads only through a certain speaker community in that language. It's one of the main questions in historical linguistics and sociolinguistics, so that's where we'll leave it for now. What about the question of when American English speakers begin flapping their T's? Maybe it goes back to December 16, 1773, when American colonists in Boston were protesting the English tea tax. They voiced their disapproval by voicing the tea. <laughs> Not really, just kidding. The change seems to have happened more than a century later than that. The following summary comes from a thorough review of the research on alveolar flapping by Kenneth DeYoung, published in 2011, which I'll put in the transcript. The earliest source he cites is a book called The Pronunciation of Standard English in America by George Philip Cropp, published in 1919. In it, Cropp wrote that, quote, in relaxed and slovenly speech, a voiceless T in voiced surroundings becomes voiced, unquote. Cropp gave several examples and noted that rated, spelled R-A-T-E-D, is hard to distinguish from rated, spelled R-A-I-D-E-D. -E he didn't go so far as to call them homophones, though. DeYoung notes that this was a question that troubled phonologists in the 1930s. When you voice a T, doesn't that just turn it into a D? And in that case, how do speakers hear the difference between words like rated and rated? 
ladder, and ladder. In researching this question, phoneticians discovered that the T's weren't actually turning into D's. They were turning into what we now call alveolar flaps. So did that mean ladder with T's and ladder with D's weren't homophones at all? And that there was some subtle cue that distinguished them if you listened carefully? Well, no, because they eventually came to a startling realization. D's were turning into alveolar flaps, too. Listen, I'll pronounce all three sounds for you. For a T, I'll carefully pronounce the word latter, as in the former and the latter. For a D, I'll carefully pronounce the word ladder, the thing you climb on, ladder. And now for the alveolar flap, I'll pronounce it ladder. Did you hear the difference between the true D and the flap? If not, you're not alone. It took phoneticians more than a decade to realize there was a difference. In the early 1940s, a researcher named Victor Oswald did an experiment and found that, for example, if you carefully pronounce the T in latter, listeners who are writing down what you say will probably spell it L-A-T-T-E-R. But if you carefully pronounce the D in ladder, some listeners will spell it L-A-D-D-E-R, and some will still spell it L-A-T-T-E-R. They can't tell whether they're hearing a true D or an alveolar flap that could be either a D or a T. Even now, according to DeYoung, trained transcribers don't always agree on whether they're hearing a D or a flap. An inconvenience for American speakers of flapping our T's and D's is that it creates so many homophones, which can cause confusion. There is a benefit, though, if you're trying to learn a language such as Spanish or Italian because they also use alveolar flaps. The difference is that Spanish and Italian speakers treat the flap as an R sound. So, if you've ever had trouble pronouncing a Spanish or Italian R, take heart, because you've probably been pronouncing this sound for years and just thinking of it as a D. I'll close with a sentence that'll force me to say as many alveolar flaps in a row as possible. When Neil sent me this script, it was so perfect that I was amazed how well he'd edited it. (laughs) That's the phrase. He'd edited it. (laughs) That segment was written by Neil Whitman, an independent researcher and writer on language and grammar. He blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com and tweets at literalminded. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find my articles at quickanddirtytips.com. The podcast is available at a lot of new places lately. In addition to iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, you can now find it on the NPR One app, on Google Play, on Spotify, and I just started publishing the audio podcast on the Grammar Girl YouTube channel because I thought some people might like to play it from their smart TV or embed it on their website. But no matter where you listen, it always helps if you subscribe and leave a review. That's all. Thanks for listening.